I'm Mike Kozer, and this is Lost Ballparks, a podcast that takes you on a journey to the golden age of baseball's lost ballparks, as told by the players, broadcasters, and fans who were there, and who are here now to give detailed firsthand accounts of what it was like to sit in the seats on a summer afternoon at Ebbets Field, what it was like to pitch at the polo grounds, stand in the batter's box at Forbes Field facing that beautiful outfield brick wall with Shenley Park in the distance, broadcast from historic Old Yankee Stadium. Walk through the gates at Comiskey Park with transistor radio in hand. Welcome to Lost Ballparks. Join us now for another Brooklyn ball game here at Ebbets Field, Brooklyn, USA. Greetings, baseball fans. This is Mel Allen greeting you from Yankee Stadium in New York City. Hello, everyone, with Bob Prince and Nellie King. This is Gene Osborne speaking to you from Forbes Field in Pittsburgh. Well, friends, here we are back at the Polo Grounds in New York City. We're underway in the first of a twenty-eight doubleheader at Tiger Stadium. And it's baseball here at Crosley Field. Just the sort of thing. So pull up a comfortable chair. If you want to take your shoes off, go ahead. Wiggle your toes, and we hope you'll have a cold shave for it throughout the evening. There are only two living members of the Brooklyn Dodgers who played in and won the 1955 World Series, pitchers Roger Craig and Carl Erskine. Carl, who is now 95 years young, spent his entire career pitching for the Dodgers, finishing with 122 wins and two no-hitters. He played at Ebbets Field with the Boys of Summer, alongside Jackie Robinson, Duke Snyder, Roy Campanella, Gil Hodges, and Pee Wee Reese. He stood on the mound at the Polo Grounds facing Willie Mays, Yankee Stadium face-to-face with Mickey Mantle and Yogi Berra. And today, he is our first guest on Lost Ballparks. Carl, it is such an honor. My pleasure. Thank you. So I want to start in Brooklyn uh, at Ebbets Field, where you spent most of your career. What made that ballpark so special? Well, one of the things, physically, it was a ballpark where the stands were built very close to the field. And people in in the box seats, they could talk to you. Even from the mound, I could hear people's uh, voices and clearly understood what they were yelling or saying. So it was a very intimate ballpark. How would you make your way to the clubhouse? Did you have to go through the rotunda or was there a separate entrance? Yeah, we went through the rotunda to the player's entrance. I know one of my stories, I had come up from Fort Worth, Texas to Brooklyn. And I had my duffel bag, which had Fort Worth cats on the side. And I could hear the Brooklynese language saying, that must be Oyskin from Foyt Oyst. That was my introduction to Brooklyn, New York. And that nickname stuck, of course. People would call you Oyst. Yeah, that's right. To this day, I have people in my hometown who know me well, will call across the street when they see me walking by, and they use the word Oyskin. So one of the most memorable honors I had was there's an accident in Brooklyn that they've named the Erskine Exit. And I always thought they should have put Oyskin on that exit. Right, so people would understand. People were probably looked at it like Erskine. What's Erskine? I know Oyskin, yeah. but I don't know Erskine. Yeah, right. The player whose locker was right across from yours in the clubhouse was Roy Campanella. That's right, yes. Roy had a very unique way of shaving. He did, yes. There's a uh, product that women use on their legs for uh, taking off the hair. Uh, Nair. It's pretty strong stuff, I guess, because Roy used to pat that on his face and sit for about 10 or 15 minutes and let it go to work. One day I took a little piece of it, rubbed it on my chin, and it burned like fire. (laughs) And Roy would put that on his old face, and it was like a baby's bottom. Uh, He could do it once a week, and he'd be shaved for the whole week. You're not feeling it. 
That's not something you wanted to keep doing. Oh, I, put, I just took a little bit of it and put it on my chin, and it burned <laughs> like fire. Yes, but I did feel it. Yeah, I bet. Talk to me about the close bond that the Dodger players had with the fans in Brooklyn. It was really a tight-knit community. W- was that your experience? It was. Yes, it was. Well, I think the Brooklyn Dodger team itself, over time, hadn't won very often. They'd been in second division most of the time. It was really a thrilling thing happened that the Brooklyn team was now contending with the great Yankees and the Giants, of course, were also in New York. So Brooklyn had always been kind of the orphan borough. But with the Jackie Robinson era, that team became very competitive and began to win instead of finishing in second division every year. So that team, with Robinson being the centerpiece, elevated itself with some respect. That made it a thrilling thing for the Brooklyn fans. Yeah, and I love the idea, too, that your local grocer was a friend. Um, You talk about how your butcher, Joe Rossi, would invite you and your family over and you would have these giant four-hour Italian dinners. It was true, and we were treated like royalty in Brooklyn. That If I pitch a good ball game, I'd come home, they have a street party, and they dance in the street, celebrate all over the place. I think it's pretty safe to say that one of the most iconic elements at Ebbets Field, outside of the rotunda, of course, would be right field, where you had this enormous scoreboard with the below the clock on top, and below that the famous Schaefer beer sign, where the H and Schaefer would light up with a hit, the E would light up with an error, and below the scoreboard, at the base of the scoreboard, the Abe Stark advertisement, hit sign, win suit. Abe Stark was a tailor in Brooklyn, and you had this incredible collection of colorful advertisements for Esquire boot polish, gem razor blades, mobile gas, lucky cigarettes. And then beyond right field, you had Bedford Avenue, kids would scramble for Duke Snyder home run ball smashed down the line. Um, I think 297 was the distance. Yeah, right down the line. Field. Yeah. Yeah, but it was a high fence, about 30 feet. So it took a pretty good blow to hit it over that fence into Bedford Avenue. That was the famous uh, right field of Evans Field. There would be a player down in the bullpen, right down the right field line, who would be assigned for that day to hold a white towel. Is that right? Can you explain why he would? True. Why would a player need to hold a white towel? Well, if if a ball is hit, man on base, and less than two outs, a fly ball to right field from the coach's box and for the runner on base, they couldn't tell if that ball was going to hit above the right fielder's head or that he was going to be able to catch it. The bullpen was just in foul territory in right field. And so the guy sitting by the foul line had a, a white towel on his lap. And if the fly ball was coming, he could tell whether the right fielder was going to be able to catch it or whether it was going to hit above his head. And if it was going to hit above his head, he would swirl a towel. Go, 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 go. And it was a truly a home field advantage in uh, Evans Field. As someone who was born in the 20s, You probably grew up idolizing Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. And I can only imagine, Carl, what it was like the first time you played at Yankee Stadium. And I'll go back to, let's say, game one of the 1949 World Series. I believe the Yankees had just relocated the visitor's clubhouse to the third base side. So when you walked into the clubhouse, you felt the enormity of stepping into the very spot that Ruth and Gehrig had once stood. Isn't it true that their lockers and uniforms were still there? 
Absolutely. And I calculated that that was a deliberate move to overwhelm young rookie ballplayers coming in for the first time to see those two lockers still in place. Yeah, I think that was calculated to shake up all of us who were young players. All right, so fast forward to Game 5 of the 1949 World Series. From Ebbets Field, here in Brooklyn, Gillette presents the World Series. You've been down in the bullpen warming up, and you get the call to come in. Erskine has been officially announced and is out on the mound. You walk the Yankee shortstop, Phil Rizzuto, uh, give up a hit to Tommy Henrik, get Yogi Berra then to fly out to deep left, and then it hits you. You now have to face one of the greatest hitters of all time. And Big DiMaggio gets a big hand. Joe DiMaggio, can you walk me through (laughs) what that moment was like? You standing 60 feet, six inches away from one of the greatest hitters of all time. Yeah. Yeah, that was a, a moment in my life I won't forget. Joe swings as a high puff fly in the short right. Second baseman Robinson is out. Under it, under it, and takes it. So you got him? Uh, yeah, right. He had a 400-foot drive, 200 straight up and 200 down. <laughs> and you'll take it, right? I'll take that one anytime. you bet. Well, let's talk about some of the great players that you faced during your remarkable career. Mickey Mantle. Well, Mal, of course, was a free swinger. And as a lot of uh, power hitters, they don't back off with two strikes. And Mantle did not. He swung from his heels with two strikes. So he did strike out a lot and had tremendous power. And he can hit from the left side or the right side, depending on the pitcher. He was a better hitter left-handed, we thought. And that's, that's how I faced him. Later on, he signed a picture to you, and it says, To Carl the greatest World Series pitcher in the world. He signs Mickey Mantle underneath that, and under his name it says, four Ks, representing four strikeouts. Mantle steps into the batter's box. There are men on first and second as the switch hitter faces Erskine. Then strike three, swinging. Erskine's 12th strikeout victim for the day. So, Carl, think about that for a second. You are one of the very few people on the planet in the history of the universe who are able to say, I struck out Mickey Mantle. Well, to do it four times was pretty rare in one game. And you did it on the biggest stage, Game 3 of the 1953 World Series. Where, by the way, you finished the game by striking out a total of 14 Yankees, a World Series record. Yes, that's true. And I was not known as a strikeout pitcher, per se, but I usually averaged maybe, oh, 8, 10 strikeouts. But that day... I had exceptional stuff. My curveball was so good, and my control was best I'd ever had it. Uh, Campanella was my catcher, and Campy would give a sign, and then he'd set up and hold the glove where he wanted to pitch, and I was able to hit that glove just one after another. So it was an exceptional day for me. Not only good stuff, but good control. The annals of baseball will forever recall the record-smashing performance of Carl Erskine and the pitcher's duel that brought victory to Flatfoot. And I love the photo of you and your wife embracing after the game in the locker room. Do you remember that photo? Do you remember that moment? Oh, sure. I sure do. It's one of my favorite because it's by the clubhouse door, and Betty's giving me a kiss on the cheek uh, after the game. And behind us is the door that says Dodgers on the door. It really is such a great photo. Um, okay, what was it like facing Willie Mays? Well, you know, I played with one of the great center fielders in history, Duke Snyder. But Duke was hampered somewhat because 
Ebbets Field did not have the open expanse of Yankee Stadium or the polo ground. It was difficult for him to play center field and have much range because of the confines of the ballpark. Willie Mays, you'd say, had all the tools. Uh, he could beat you with his arm, with his legs, with his glove, and with his bat. So it's almost hard to pick the best center fielder out of the three playing there at the same time. Yeah, think about that. In New York, at one time, Playing center field on any given day, you could go see Willie Mays at the Polo Grounds, Mickey Mantle at Yankee Stadium, or Duke Snyder at Ebbets Field. Yeah, I remember a day when we uh, were playing a game, it must have been an exhibition game, and then the announcer said, put your attention on a center field gate, and through that gate walked three of the greatest center fielders in the history of baseball. <laughs> I was like a little kid. I wanted to go out and get an autograph. Yeah, I bet. Carl, in 1951, the New York Giants, after trailing the Dodgers by 13 and a half games, went on to this miraculous end-of-the-season run to tie Brooklyn, forcing a best-of-three series for the National League pennant. The Giants took Game 1, the Dodgers win Game 2, and in Game 3, the Dodgers are up 2 in the ninth inning, but the Giants are sending Bobby Thompson to the plate with two men on. As Thompson walks to the plate, the Dodgers have two pitchers warming up at the bullpen, Ralph Branca and you. Your manager, Charles Dressen, calls down to the bullpen and is informed that you and Branca are both ready. But what happens next? Well, I think the question that was asked by the manager, Dressen, to Clyde Sukaforth, the bullpen coach, which one has the best stuff? His answer back was, they're both throwing well and they're both ready. Erskine is bouncing his overhand curve. Let me have Branca, was the answer from the manager. My curveball had to be down because it was straight overhand. Uh, as Campanella used to tell me, you bury it, I'll get it. Uh, it had to be low. And so apparently that fact caused the manager to say, I don't want any wild pitches in this situation. So let me have Branca. That's the only clue I ever had about how he decided which one of us to, to call in. One of the most famous moments in baseball history about to unfold. Branca walks in. And Bobby Thompson does this. Back of throws. There's a long side. I said to me, I believe. The Giants won the pennant. 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 Bobby Thompson hits into the very back of the left field stand. The Giants won the pennant. And they're going crazy. They're going crazy. From your vantage point uh, in the bullpen, can you describe that moment? Well, I was uh, warming up. As Branca went in, uh, Labine got up and began throwing alongside of me. So we, were, the two of us were still warming up in the bullpen. And that was a sinking line drive that Thompson hit. It wasn't a high uh, home run, so it was going fast. And Labine made the comment when it went in the stands. He said, I didn't see a ball. I saw my wallet going over that fence. We lost the money for that series. And for those who aren't familiar with the polo grounds, the clubhouses are in center field. So it, it wasn't as difficult for you and Labine to make your way to the clubhouse, but for the players walking from the dugout, that's a long haul as fans and players are flooding the field. I, I imagine there's some confusion getting to up to the clubhouse. Yeah, you're right. It was uh, bedlam outside the clubhouse. And of course, the door in between the two clubhouses, they had the champagne already set up in our side of the clubhouse. 
And when we got inside, they were moving the champagne cases from our side to Giant's side. So that was a kind of a kick in the teeth after taking the loss. And then it's pretty thin separation between, at the polo grounds, between your clubhouse and the Giants clubhouse. The Dodgers are feeling, uh, rightfully so, disappointed about the loss. And then you can hear the cheering from the Giants clubhouse. Not only that, but uh, there was a door, just a common uh, door between the clubhouses. And it was never locked. So a lot of times players who had been traded away or something would come back and come through that door to say hi to their former teammates. So that door was open. But after this incident where they yelled through the door, the loss that we had to take, the commissioner ordered that door to be permanently boarded up. (laughs) So that door used to be wide open and players would come through and see their teammates but that never happened after that incident. Aside from the that incident in 1951, what was it like playing at the polo grounds? Well, you know, the ballparks in, in those days, and maybe to some degree today even, uh, each park had its own identity. And a polo ground was certainly uh, different because it was real short down each line, but it went out very deep to center field. So there was a lot of balls hit really good that were caught. It was about a 20-mile drive from Brooklyn, you would ride with a few of the guys from your apartments in Brooklyn over to the polo grounds, cross the Brooklyn Bridge? That's true. Yeah, it was Duke Snyder, Pee Wee Reese, Rube Walker, and I would carpool. We'd trade off driving. So that's the way we handled it. Do you remember what car you uh, had back then? I had a Pontiac. I was very proud of that. I bought it in Brooklyn, actually. When I got to Brooklyn, the guys told me, said, you know, if you need a car, Carl, uh, we got a Pontiac dealer here. Gives us a really good deal. So I went down, talked to him. I bought a car, a Pontiac, the first car ever owned. The Pontiacs in those days had, they used to call it a turtle back. It was a kind of a slanted back on the car, a very distinctive style. What year Pontiac would that be? Like a uh, 49 or 48? My guess would be it was a 48. And this car was black with lots of real heavy chrome. Oh, sure. What are your memories of the 1955 World Championship? Obviously, it's the first in Dodger history. Well, I think the guys that play on that team will all pretty much agree that we had better teams in 52 and 53 by the records, by the stats, than we did in 55. But we didn't win the pennant neither one of those two years. So 55 stands out as the best team ever. I'll tell you what the moment was that I remember. After so many tries, the players actually, in all honesty, we felt more for the fans of Brooklyn than we did ourselves because they've suffered so long without a win. And when we finally got the win, brought the championship to the borough of Brooklyn for the fans that had waited so long, Roger Craig was a rookie on that team. He says, Carl, I remember the moment in that clubhouse. It did explode right away. It was it was almost like a, a moment of reverence that you finally won it and finally brought the victory to the Brooklyn fans. I saw Jackie had tears in his eyes. You had tears in your eyes. You guys were so emotionally affected. And he said, I burned in my memory. <laughs> I was glad to hear Roger say that because I felt all that, but I didn't know anybody else noticed it. Wow. So amazing. Carl, it's May 1956. And a newspaper article quoting New York Giants scout Tom Sheehan said, Jackie and Campy are too old. 
and Erskine can't win with the garbage he's been throwing up there. That's the scene as you head out to pitch at Ebbets Field on May 12, 1956. The announcement being made and our crowd standing now for our national anthem. What do you remember about that game? Well, what I remember about it was reading that article on a, a newspaper that was laying on one of the trunks in the clubhouse. And I didn't need to read that article. My shoulder was giving me lots of trouble. Top of that, now I read this headline and, and that Erskine's over the hill. Psychologically, I didn't need that kind of blow, but uh, maybe it gave me a more incentive. I don't know. But pitching that day, I had good stuff and I had good control. And it turned out to be uh, one of my best games ever. You pitch a no-hitter against Willie Mays and the New York Giants at Ebbets Field after the game. And this, by the way, highlights the bond between you and Jackie Robinson. Jackie runs over to the Giants' dugout, pulls out a clipping of that article, waves it in their faces and says, how do you like that garbage? That's a true story. Jackie was so intense. And uh, he read that article in the clubhouse. Uh, He had that article folded up and was in his hip pocket. Now, I don't know why he would ever do that, but that's what he did then. After the last out, he he ran over to the giant dugout, and Tom Sheehan, who was quoted, was seated right by the giant dugout. And Jackie waved that article and said, how do you like that garbage? Now, that is a true story, uh, even though it sounds made up. Honestly, it's one of my all-time favorite stories. You said in your book that many of your most vivid memories during your professional career were during those nine seasons that Jackie Robinson and you were teammates. Well, Jackie brought a higher energy to our team by the way he played. And I know there's a saying about players having a game face. And Duke Snyder, who was my roommate, his locker was close to Jackie's. And he told me one day, he said, I want you to come up to my locker and look at Jackie's game face. When he's getting ready to play a ball game, Jackie has the real game face. I want you to see it. I made my way up to Duke's locker, and sure enough, it, Jackie has this staunch look on his face, and he's ready to go. He's ready to beat somebody, anybody. So Jackie was kind of a spark. It wasn't in the statistics, but it was sure present with his fierceness on the field. Of course, he took it out on the bases. He was a very daring base runner. So, Carl, Gil Hodges was recently elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Long overdue, for in your mind? I think so. Gil was a quiet guy, and of course he was a great fielder, even when he was not hitting very well. He still, uh, he still fielded great. And he was a favorite of the fans, because when a holler guy, in fact, the manager addressed him and said, if you'll argue one time with an umpire enough to get thrown out of the ball game, I'll, I'll give you $100. <laughs> it never happened. <laughs> Uh, Hodges never, he never argued with the umpires. When he became a manager, I know Tom Seaver said, yeah, Gil didn't say much. He didn't yell a lot. He didn't cuss a lot. He didn't throw the stools in the clubhouse. But he'd give you a look, and it burned your shorts off. He could give you a look you, you couldn't handle because it said so much, but he didn't say a word. Yeah. You could retell that story about facing Yogi Berra, where you got the sign from Dressen, I think, to knock him down. He told me, he said he's dug in with his back foot, hitting left-handed in that short right field, 297 down the right field line. So the first time he came up, I got a strike on him, and I hit him unintentionally. So he went to first. Dressen said to me between innings, so do it right the next time. Get a strike on him, 
I want to see him upside down. So the next time up, I got a stone yogi, and I hit him a second time. <laughs> and he looked at me going to first base. And when I came to bat, I let off the next inning. And yogi's in his position behind the plates in the crouch, and he's got the mask on. And he's looking up at me through his mask. And in a soft voice, which he had, he says, Carl, are you throwing at me? <laughs> like, you wouldn't do that, would you? <laughs> hey, so after the 1957 season, the Dodgers pack up and move from Brooklyn to Los Angeles. What do you remember about the final game at Ebbets Field and, and the final moments driving away? Well, fans in Brooklyn to the team, it was a love affair. And like a lover's quarrel, when that happened, it was like the fans said, go on and leave. We don't care. We don't want you anymore. And I always remember that. It was such a hurt for the Dodger fans in Brooklyn for the team to pull up and leave that they thumbed their nose at us. <laughs> it's good riddance. That's like a love affair. Did you have some nostalgia about the old ballpark and about all the, you know, the great memories that you had there? It was, sure. Yeah, you couldn't help but have that because it was such an iconic ballpark and so much had happened there Brooklyn Dodgers, even though they hadn't always been winners, they'd always been a colorful team, but for the wrong reasons. Uh, getting fly balls hit on the head and uh, ground balls going between their legs. <laughs> they didn't have a real good reputation, a defensive team. But yeah, there was a bittersweet when we walked out of Evans Field. I just want to thank you so much for the time. Um, it has been such an honor to be able to to talk with you. I cannot thank you enough for spending some time with us today. Well, you're very kind. I think there's one thing in my life that I can say has always been present, is gratitude. I wake up every day <laughs> with a feeling of gratitude about lots of things in my life. My grandparents used to say to me, uh, they used to continually remind me that there's so much to be thankful for. And it's true that when you start off your day like that, it makes a huge difference. Yes, it does. It really does. And I hope we talk again sometime. Yeah, I do too. And if I'm ever out in Indiana, I would love to take you out to breakfast and just hear more of your stories. You come to my hometown of Anderson, Indiana, and I'll be glad to take you to breakfast. I would love it. Thanks a lot. Well, now, I can't help but think that even though I live in San Diego, it's probably time for me to make a trip to Indiana. you imagine having breakfast with Carl Erskine? Hey, I want to thank you for tuning in to episode one of the Lost Ballparks podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe on whatever platform that you happen to be listening on. Subscriptions are incredibly important. The more folks who listen to the podcast, the more opportunities that we'll have to bring you some of baseball's all-time greats. Uh, you can also follow us, if you aren't already, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I've spent a lot of time imagining what it must have been like to see a game played at the Polo Grounds, the original configuration of Yankee Stadium or Ebbets Field. And I'm so grateful to have been able to talk with Carl Erskine, uh, who played at all three and, of course, was part of the first World Championship Dodger team back in 1955. Really enjoyed his book, by the way. Tales from the Dodgers Dugout. It's available on Amazon.com if you want to check that out. Next week on Lost Ballparks, Bob Lee. Bob's a multi-Emmy winner, iconic ESPN sports anchor. In fact, he's one of the originals of the network, joining ESPN three days after its launch in 1979. And, and he will be our guest next week on Lost Ballparks. He attended his first game at Old Yankee Stadium in 1961. And we owned a black and white television and did still for another <laughs> a long time. So I'd never seen a baseball game in color. Ever. And there it was. It was green. It was like, oh, it took it took your breath away, literally. That story and more on next week's Lost Ballparks.